Labor costs are high, supply costs are high, COVID-19 aid is going away, and hospitals are struggling to make ends meet. Healthcare is one of those weird sections of the economy that cannot respond quickly to rising costs. We'll explain why from Fulcrum Strategies and Flatlining.net. This is the Flatlining Podcast. One thing we've noticed from listeners of the Flatlining Podcast is that not all of you have signed up for our weekly e-newsletter. You can do so now at flatlining.net. Each week, we share some of the most interesting and relevant healthcare news-related items we find and how they might affect you, your practice, or your patients. It also includes a weekly column from me. Sign up now for the Friday Pulse Check at flatlining.net. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, a podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net, and with me for our discussion today, as he has been, is the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and economist, Ron Howergan. Ron, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. Happy to join. Today, we are going to be talking a little bit about healthcare uh, economics today, which, Ron, I would say that this is definitely your forte. Um be talking a little bit about uh, the economics of healthcare delivery. We're going to be talking about rising costs, rising labor costs, how COVID aid has been affecting all that. But first, I want to ask you quickly, Ron, uh, about more of a current events. I mean, all of this is current events issues, but this is a uh, one that was particularly well reported last week, and that is that the Biden administration is uh, cutting ten thousand dollars of student loan debt for you know people making under a certain amount. And there's been some bipartisan criticism of this, including some Democrats, Republicans saying that this should have been thrown at medical debt, with the idea being that people who go into medical debt aren't, um, you know, they don't agree to go into it in the same way that you sign, you know, you sign a loan agreement for uh, university. I'm just curious about what your first first reaction to that would be. Well, I think, you know, anytime you talk about debt relief or debt reduction, you can come up with a lot of very cogent arguments on why somebody deserves to have their debt relieved. I think there's a very strong argument for um, medical debt relief, which is an enormous problem in this country because in the argument, as you so put it is, look, I didn't want to get sick. I didn't want to have heart attack. I didn't want to be in an emergency room. And I came out of that with all of this massive debt. You can make the argument that um, that person is more deserving than the person who decided to go to college, decided to sign on the loan um, debt line. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that we don't have a problem with college debt in this country. We clearly do. But I understand the argument why medical debt may have been a better, uh, more deserving use of it. Now, there's also people making arguments that, well, what about the person who didn't go to college and borrowed money to start their landscaping business? Mm -hmm. How about reducing their debt? What about people who got snowed under by massive credit card debt when they you know, lost their employment during COVID? What about the people who you know, 
bought a house and then for whatever reason, maybe not their own fault, the value dropped and now they're underwater on a mortgage. I mean, there's a, a lot of arguments people can make about what who's deserving, who's not. And I don't think there's it's ever a situation where you're going to, you know, please everybody. Um, and so, yeah, this debate's going to go on and on as, as this program rolls out. Mm-hmm. An interesting statistic I heard on the radio this morning was that the uh, when surveyed, about 52% of people with student loan debt say they didn't realize what they were getting into when they got into it, which is, on the one hand is kind of an interesting statistic in itself of, you know, what are some of these uh, universities and, and, and banks saying before uh, these students sign on the dotted line. Who holds uh, the medical debt in the country? Because unlike student loan debt, it's not held by the federal government. Well, I would argue that that the ultimate person who holds that debt is the provider of care, mm-hmm. because that's who is owed the debt typically. Now, some of there are these sort of medical credit cards out there and et cetera. But for the most part, if somebody has medical debt, it's owed to a hospital or a physician or a combination of the above. So the delivery system holds that debt at the end of the day, because if the person walks away or defaults, they're not getting paid for that service or that good that they provided. Um, so that's one of the other problems is our delivery system really holds that debt where, you know, student loan debt is backed by either banks or guaranteed by the federal government. Um, and they're the ones who are sort of holding the, the nugget if it doesn't if it doesn't come to fruition. We've talked a lot before about how a lot of doctors and providers, they get into healthcare because they want to help people. And obviously, the not only because there's federal laws saying you can't turn someone away from the emergency room, but generally because we believe that most nurses and doctors, they want to help the people coming into an emergency room regardless of their ability to pay. But there is the um, kind of the business question of how does a hospital, how does a provider group handle something like this where they're not able to recoup um, the money for their services? Well, like, like anything, it becomes a hidden tax. Um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the fact that Medicare um, doesn't compensate physicians and hospitals enough to survive, that if everything got paid at Medicare, they would all fail. Mm-hmm. And so what happens if Medicare is not paying their full share, if you will, or enough of the cost, it means everybody else pays more. So to the extent that people default on medical debt, whether it's to a medical group or a hospital, that just means they're going to have to collect more from everybody else, um, you know, which is... One of the things that people are getting upset with on the tuition thing is, well, well, great, I have to pay now to cover the debt that somebody else, you know, took out when they signed that student loan. Um, there, there, you know, it gets back to that old statement, there is no free lunch and there isn't. Somebody's mm-hmm. going to pay for that, either, you know, the rest of the consumers or taxpayers and that kind of stuff. Right. A- absolutely. And it's it's an issue that, I mean, you you have both the, the moral, ethical issue of people mm-hmm. needing care, and obviously we're going to give them care in this country, because I think we would all agree that health care in that sense is, is a human right, and people mm-hmm. are deserving of it. Um, but the question comes back down to, with like everything we've discussed, how are we going to pay for it? Right. And, um, you know, as, I hope that as we enter into the, um, the, perhaps not this election cycle, but the next one, we might see... Although I guess I won't keep my fingers crossed or hold my breath. We might see some interesting and creative ways to do that. Um, I've been reading about Andrew Yang's forward party and seeing how they might try and make inroads in the next election. So we'll Well, have to see about that. And we need to be able to have a discussion about paying for something and Mm -hmm. not have the mere question 
seem like an attack on the program. I mean, I almost as a as my own little personal social experiment, you know, I posed a, a short post on social media, and and basically it started with, and this was the sentence, you know, setting aside the merits or lack thereof of the tuition reimburse the tuition debt service you know reduction. How are we going to pay for this? And I knew what I would get, and I immediately got this firestorm of people either accusing me of being completely unsympathetic to people who have all this student debt and how are they possibly going to pay it off or people on the other end going you're right you they should never agree to this It's a horrible program and i up kept going back ladies and gentlemen read the first sentence i'm purposely saying i am not discussing the merits or lack thereof i'm asking the question about paying for it and it doesn't mean that i've taken aside but we can't do that we've lost that ability to at least and, and asking a question like, how are you going to pay for removing student debt is a legitimate question. It doesn't mean I'm opposed to it or I'm for it. It means we, we've got to be able to ask that question. And, and we've got to figure out a way to do that in everything, especially in healthcare, which is such a massive part of our economy. You know, you raise a really interesting point, uh, and this is one of the instances where I think our, our friends over in the United Kingdom might be a one step ahead of the curve on this. Um, a couple weeks ago, you know, they have the NHS there. It's a socialized system. It's a single payer system. And um, regardless of what, you know, if you live there, whether you like it or not, that's the system that's there to stay. Mm -hmm. And no one is fighting to defund it at this point. You know, it's that's the system that they have. Uh, I recently saw a, de a debate. I believe it was aired in the U.S. on C-SPAN, but it was one of their debates for their new prime minister because mm -hmm. Boris Johnson's resigning. And one of the concerns was how are we going to reform the nhs and they actually this is something i was actually impressed about that you had conservatives talking about a single-payer system with actual ideas of how they want to reform it and make it more efficient mm -hmm. from everything from um you know the most creative i thought was you start penalizing people for not showing up to appointments you know if not you know you not you miss it one time but you know you mm -hmm. miss two three four appointments you need to start paying you need to start paying for those appointments after that that you're missing because you're right. taking service away from someone else. And I, I worry about where we are in the U.S. that we can't have that sort of discussion about the systems that we already have in place. No, you're absolutely right. That, that's exactly my point. We've got to be able to start asking questions without it immediately turning into a, you know, what side are you on? And if you're not on my side, you're inherently evil. Um, and that goes both ways. So, you know, but you're absolutely right there. They are still, and I was over in England a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. they still have what I consider to be rational debates and all their candidates don't agree, but at least they're having an honest debate about it without it getting emotional and personal right away. Right. Absolutely. Well, with that idea for a discussion in mind, why don't we switch gears a little bit to talk sure. about uh, the state of the economy and um, how, the econ the economics of healthcare delivery. Um, in keeping that in mind, that this is the system we have, you know, until Bernie Sanders is elected president. This is the system that we have in the U.S., and so this is where we have to have discussions about how we're going to to make it work. Mm -hmm. um, you sent me an email earlier this week um, to talk about how healthcare is different from other sectors of the economy. And why don't we start with there with that? How is healthcare different from other sectors of the economy? Yeah, so, you know, we all know that we're facing significant and 
you know, historic inflation. We haven't had this kind of inflation in decades. Um, and everybody understands it, whether it's, you know, the price of gas at the pump or the price of groceries, we all get what inflation does. What we sometimes miss is how differently inflation, especially inflation that ramps up this quickly, impacts different segments of our economy. And let me use the two examples of mm -hmm. gas sure. and healthcare delivery. So gas is a situation where as the price of the inputs, in their case, the tanker that rolls in full of gas, as that goes up, the gas station is able to immediately increase the price of their product so that they're not underwater. So that truck rolls in, and if that tanker is 20% more expensive than the last tanker, guy hits a button and all those gas pumps roll up 20% more price. And that's why we see it almost on a daily basis how that gas price fluctuates. So that's a, a market economy or a product where they can be very flexible on their price and do it immediately. You go down the scale, you know, the airline tickets can do the same thing as the price of fuel goes up, the price of labor goes up, they increase the price of the flight tomorrow. Okay. Mm -hmm. You go down the scale to healthcare, which is almost the exact opposite end of the scale, which is their input costs go up, but they have almost zero ability to increase their price. And that's because they can't just change the price at the pump. They either get paid roughly half, I call it half of the patients that roll through our government um, payer, Medicare or Medicaid, which there is a set fee for that that you can't change and you can't negotiate with the government. They have to change it. Mm -hmm. The other half is tied up mostly in insurance contracts where there's a set fee that can't be changed unless you can either renegotiate or terminate a contract. So if you're a hospital, let's say, and all of a sudden your labor cost goes up and your cost for electricity goes up and all of these product costs go up, it's now much more expensive for you to produce your product. But you can't increase your price because the government hasn't increased how much they're gonna pay you for that. And you're locked into these long-term contracts, let's say with your insurance companies. So all that happens is your margins suddenly get thinner or go away. And we're seeing a lot of healthcare delivery, whether they be physician offices or hospitals, or any of these delivery mechanisms, go from coming out of COVID thinking, woo, we survived that. Um, their COVID aid money starts to run out and they go, well, at least we got through it. Now the patients are coming back and then all of a sudden their input costs go up almost overnight, but their price doesn't go up and they're in serious financial problems right now, and, and some of them in risk of, of failure with very little ability to deal with it other than to try to cut your cost in other areas. And that means reducing staffing levels. It means reducing the number of nurses on every floor. It means potentially shutting things down on the weekends that you would otherwise keep open. Um, those are very difficult decisions and can negatively impact quality and, and level of service on patient care. So that's how it's different is when, when healthcare gets impacted by inflation, it doesn't have the ability to increase its price, unlike other things like a McDonald's can increase the price of their burger and the gas station can increase the price at the pump. Hospitals and doctors really don't have that capability, not very easily. And on the insurance side of healthcare, it's, it's fairly easy for the insurance companies to, to um, adjust their prices in a sense to, to the, uh, enrollees when their labor costs go up as well, though, because they're not tied to that same sort of contract. Well, um, 
Yeah, yes and no. So okay. the insurance companies, you know, they'll have a premium for an employer group mm -hmm. that's locked in for a year, so they okay. can't change it for next year. But you got to understand that when you look at the insurance companies, when you think about the cost or the input price of their product, 85% of the price of their product is consumed by how much they pay out to hospitals and doctors under those contracts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if the insurance company has to pay more for their secretaries and their claims processors and et cetera, the, on the average insurance company dollar, um, usually only about 11% of that is what they call administration. And that's where their input costs could go up. So let's say, you know, <clears throat> their input costs went up by 20%, which is more than what actually happened. But let's say it went up by 20%. Sure. Well, actually that only impacts the re their total cost by about 2% because it's 20% on roughly 10% of their cost. Whereas a hospital, it's, it's flipped the other way. Right. You know, a huge part of theirs is labor cost and supply cost and, and all that, you know, um, all that admin stuff. So um, even though the insurance companies can't change their premium price overnight, they're much more insulated to it because mm -hmm. of these contracts, which is why they don't want them to, you know, they don't want to suddenly have them go up. And that's why they don't want to pay the hospitals or doctors more. And because the, I'm assuming that the rising cost of inflation, um, the rising cost of supplies, uh, labor, that's what's causing um, large medical systems like Wake Med in Raleigh uh, or uh, University of um, Mississippi Medical Center, which we discussed a few weeks ago, why they're choosing to kind of go to battle with some of these payers right now so that they can get a little bit increased reimbursement. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing a lot of different things happen. We're seeing, you know, medical groups and and hospitals take on a fight with a payer um, <clears throat> because to some degree they're felt they feel like they're a, a cornered animal you know they got no place else to go you know that's why that you know that old thing don't ever corner a wild animal because you know uh, if, if they've got no option to run they'll attack right um, it's also why we're seeing some of these medical groups and facilities make some hard choices about staffing levels you know, um, maybe we aren't going to have as many nurses in the OR or in the ER or on the floors as we used to. Maybe we are going to cut back on certain things because um, it's really the only option they're left with, either improve revenue by doing battle with an insurance company or cut expenses by letting people go or, or having fewer people per shift. Tell me a little bit about the difference between um, what you said in your email with CPIU and CPI Physician Services. Yeah, so people... Boy, you know, if, if my mother were still alive, she'd be happy that I'm finally using my degree because this may be the first time I've actually, you know, used it in a tangible way. But people um, confuse inflation as being just one number. and It's not. Economists track inflation in different categories. So general inflation is what they call a market basket of goods if I'm buying a variety of goods. But they also want to see how it hands, handles different segments. So there's... CPIU is technically CPI, Consumer Price Index, Urban Wage Earners, and it's what they would buy. Um, there's CPI, you know, um, auto industry, there's energy, there's all these other things. Well, one of them is medical, okay? <clears throat> CPI measures the price of something, not the input cost. So when we see the CPI for energy go up. That's the price you pay for gas, the price you pay for electricity, price you, you know, it's not necessarily the input cost. Um, CPI medical is the price you pay for the average medical service. 
and there's physician and hospital component. But here's the telling part about it. When people talk about inflation is running 8%, 9% last month, okay, that's that sort of full market basket of goods. Some of those things will be significantly more than 9%. For a while, energy and gas was well above that. Um, some will be lower than that. So if general inflation is running 9 that's a rough good number of input costs to, to healthcare because that's labor, supplies, all the stuff they have to buy. CPI Medical, the price they can sell their product for it is running less than 2%, running about 1.8, 1.9%. Therein lies that problem. The hospitals and physicians are buying labor and goods and services to produce their product at a 9% inflation rate, but then selling their product at a 1.8% inflation rate. That delta is what creates the financial problem for all of these mm -hmm. entities and a problem that, you know, if it doesn't get better soon, it's going to start breaking some systems. Talk a little bit about why some of these labor costs have gone up and how and how really COVID-19 fueled a lot of this problem. Yeah, I mean, we we are in some ways in a perfect storm of of inflationary pressures, especially in the labor market. Um, and it's not one thing, but it's a combination of everything that's come together. So if you look back at COVID and you track at a high level what it did. So the first thing that happened was production stopped. You know, when mm -hmm. everybody was told to go home, we had no production. Um, factories were closed, et cetera. Other than the essential workers, meat plants, et cetera, there was no production for a while, okay? Second thing that happened was you had all these people at home um, many of them receiving COVID relief money to keep them rolling along. Well, but part of what's happening while they're at home and while there's no production is we call pent-up demand. Things that they normally would routinely purchase, whether that be a new refrigerator, a trip on vacation, weren't being purchased. Well, that demand starts to build up like a, like a bubble, okay? Now, the other thing that happened was we lost in, in about 250,000 people that would normally be in the workforce passed away from COVID. That's 250,000 more than would have otherwise normally died. Um, now, 250,000 people in the total workforce doesn't seem like a whole lot, but we run on pretty thin margins of unemployment. So now the supply of labor just went down. And, and what I mean by that is people might say, well, I thought a million people died. Well, 250,000 are the ones that are between 18 and 60. That's your mm -hmm. workforce. Right. You know, the, the bulk of the rest of them were senior citizens. Um, okay, so we had a drop in the, in the labor force. We got all this pent up demand and no supply. Okay, suddenly we start unraveling out of COVID. Now everybody wants to do that demand. I want to take the trip now that I can travel. You know, I want to um, buy that new refrigerator. I want to buy that new car. I want to, you know, and it takes a while for production to ramp back up. So production gets behind. And when production gets behind, it's a little bit like that. Um, there's the, the old famous I Love Lucy scene where she's the pies are coming off the conveyor belt. She's trying to stack them and they keep coming faster and faster and mm -hmm. she can't keep up and it just turns into this disaster. Well, that's part of what happened with the supply chain. Um, they couldn't ramp back up quickly enough and they were hindered by a um, reduction in labor supply, which they really needed. So now we've got this mismatch of a spike in demand and not enough supply. And when you think about the labor market, 
when demand exceeds supply, prices go up. And suddenly, to try to get that limited talent pool and more talent pool and supply, people started offering better and better wages. And so then we got into this, which is where we are today, with you know, people saying, why can't I find somebody to work? Well, for all of those reasons, and the solution to that is, well, I'll offer more money. And then when, you know, when Walmart offers more money for their checkout people, then somebody else has to to compete. And mm -hmm. we're in that market right now. So labor costs have gone significantly up. Um, and if you're one of those businesses that you can just raise the price of your product, that's okay. But if you're a doctor's office or a hospital, you can't, and then you're in trouble. One of the... One of the, I guess, one of the sectors within healthcare that has seen, I think, some of the most labor costs of inflation has been nurses yeah. and um, nursing. And um, Vicki Bird, uh, the CEO of the Montana Nurses Association, said in an interview to Kaiser Health News that, you know, it's not the problem isn't really recruiting because you can, you know, you can get anyone in the door for about for a twenty thousand dollar bonus or what it is, but mm -hmm. it's keeping nurses at the hospital and keeping them from moving on to other places where they're offering better pay. How does a hospital, you know, how do they even manage with that? Well, yeah, and there's a couple, it's a huge problem. There's a couple of things you need, to, you need to understand. In addition to, you know, the workforce that we lost, there's a significant amount. There's been some studies about how many nurses have just gotten burnt out either burnout in the acute hospital setting and aren't going to do that anymore, or just burnout in general. I mean, you know, people fail to understand that in, in most clinical settings, you know, they're still wearing masks around the clock because mm -hmm. they're in a clinical setting. And I got to tell you, I mean, I didn't like it when I had to wear them just when I went out and went grocery shopping. They're, they're annoying. Um, after a while, that gets tiresome. I mean, I have a good friend of mine who's been a nurse her whole life and you know, and she's like, I think I have permanent marks in my face where this mask goes, and I get it. So you've had burnout. Um, the other thing is the hospitals can't really just say, well, you know, we're not going to have production today. I mean, I, I heard the other day there's a um, one of the auto manufacturers had a supply chain issue, so they shut down the plant for two weeks. Well, you don't mm -hmm. just do that with a hospital. You don't say, right. well, you know what, we're going to be closed for the next couple of weeks. So you've got to staff, and you've got to staff continuously. And, and that's then the challenge. So some of them are offering signing bonuses. Some are offering retention bonuses, um, you know, better flexible hours um, because they're, they're all competing for the same dwindling talent pool. And it becomes very, very inflationistic. And, and you know, at some point that sort of bubble bursts. And just to tease something that will come up later when I have my final thought, uh, there's a hospital here in Michigan that um, – bought a, a, a robot delivery system to help cover, you know, just wait, you know, mm -hmm. the, the time, the time that quote unquote, you'd waste having to go pick up things between different floors. And I'll tell you right. a little bit more about that at the end of the program. During the pandemic, hospitals, along with a lot of other businesses, received uh, COVID aid. Um, I think rightfully so, in part mm -hmm. because the government, you know, the government was paying people to show, close their business. I think that's one way that, that a lot of people look at it. Um, Bozeman Health, which is featured in the Kaiser Health News uh, article, received $20 million in federal aid in 2020, $2.5 million in 2021, and only about $100,000 in 2022. The COVID aid is drying up for, for hospitals, um, but do you think, I mean, as an economist, do you think that this should be drying up so quickly, or should it be, should we try and extend it out a little bit more? 
Well, and, and boy, there's that's a you know, uh, I was going to say that's a six million dollar question, but it's probably right. more like a sixty billion dollar question. <laughs> um, you know, there there's any time you look at some sort of massive government aid, and I I agree that it had to be done. You know, there really wasn't any other choice other than let the whole economy fail. You know, hindsight, people can look back and I go, well, you shouldn't have spent it here. You shouldn't have spent as much there. Right. And that's easy to do. And, I, and there were there were definitely mistakes made. You couldn't do a program this big without making mistakes. You start thinking about continuing to do it. And to me, it poses the question, well, is that like continuing to hang bags of plasma when somebody's bleeding out? Or do you try to fix and stop the bleeding? Um and my guess is it's probably a little bit of both. Um, I don't think that the solution to this problem that the facilities are facing right now is to turn all that COVID money back on because that's just going to fuel more labor inflation. Okay. Um, you know, if, if you continue to just pump the money through it, they're going to continue to raise wages and, and, and that's going to hurt. Um, that being said, I don't think we can let hospitals just fail especially hospitals that serve, I mean, um, underserved communities or are in an area where if that fails, there really isn't the capacity for what the community needs, um, you know, by losing those those beds. So there, like all things, there's got to be that happy medium. And I do think the government, whether it's state or, or federal, needs to take a look at, is there some opportunity for whether it's a physician practice, big physician practice or hospital or whatever, to apply for some sort of government aid in lieu of failure. Now, that, in my opinion, needs to be screened pretty heavily. You know, that can't be just, hey, you know, um, we, we wanted to repaint the helicopter, you know, right. can we have your money? Mm -hmm. um, and, and it needs to be some pretty rigorous scrutiny about um, the failure scenario. I also think it, it, it needs to be a loan and not a, you know, like a PPP forgivable loan. Sure. Um, yeah. It can be extended over a serious period of time because when things settle out, hospitals should be able to, you know, fund those kind of loan repayments. Is there any sort of um, health care reform that could, you know, pass through Congress and end up on President Biden's desk that would help protect hospitals from, um, you know, not necessarily pandemics, but from drastic financial woes that many of them seem to be seeing right now? Um, the, the only one that I think um, is easy enough to do that would be um, quick enough um, to deal with it, because a lot of these reforms, you know, you're, you're looking years down the road um, before they would really have impact, and they're more systemic reforms. And when we talked about it earlier, um, you know, who holds patient debt? Mm -hmm. hospitals and doctors. So the government could come through just like they did with the, with the tuition debt and say, hey, you know, if you make less than X dollars um, and you're carrying this much medical debt, you know, we'll step in and pay that. That's going to do a couple things. One, it's going to take people who probably have little or no ability to repay that debt um, and get it off their, off their backs. Um, and the person holding the debt is a hospital or a physician group. And so that payment, you know, would go to them. So, you know, right now, every hospital physician group I know is big physician group is standing on a lot of accounts receivable mm -hmm. um, that they just haven't converted to patient bad debt. Well, accounts receivable don't pay payroll, you right. know, uh, cashing some of that stuff out would give them an injection of cash. Now it's, uh, I'm not suggesting that this is, 
not without its problems, it's also going to add to an already problematic federal deficit. So, mm-hmm. um, and it would, because of that, it would be met with an awful lot of people saying, there we go again, just giving people free money. But, but to the, to the extent of how do you give somebody a financial lifeline, that's fairly easy to do. That's probably the easiest thing to do. Staying with the medical debt problem and how that, you know, harms harms hospitals, you know, financially by having accounts receivable. Um, another article came across my desk last week, and we mentioned it in the Friday Pulse Check, and that's that um, in, in addition to the student loan forgiveness, federal agencies have been asked to stop looking at medical debt for when they are uh, when they're looking at various sources of income and debt when they're required to make um, loan payments. This would be yep. agencies such as uh, Veterans Affairs, uh, Consumer uh, Financial Protection Bureau, and others. In addition with that, and then with the uh, major agencies, credit agencies earlier this year announcing that their medical debt's not going to count towards their credit score, have we made medical debt into something that almost doesn't matter and there's not really an incentive to pay it back? Um. We're getting close if we haven't gotten there. Um, you know, other than the annoyance of, you know, debt collectors and, and people's own personal morality about not walking away from a debt. And and, that, and I don't want to diminish that. There, there's, mm-hmm. I do think the majority of the people in this country don't want to stick somebody else with something they actually owe. Um, but yeah, it's starting to get to the point where you've got to seriously ask yourself, especially if you're fairly low income and, and you, you know, it's a mountain of debt. What, what harm is it going to do to me? If it's not going to affect my FICO score, if it's not going to affect these other things, you know, other than getting annoying letters and phone calls from a debt collector that I can hang up on or screen, what bad thing? Because that credit score thing was the big stick. Mm-hmm. It'll ruin your credit rating. Um, so, yeah, and, and that creates problems for um, hospitals and doctors who, who know that, who know that people walk in with, you know, so a small amount of people walk in with sort of immunity, like, hey, you, you can't kick me out, you got to care for me, and I don't care what you bill me, I'm not going to pay it. Right. Going forward, uh, as we progress out of the COVID-19 pandemic, what are some ways that hospitals and physician groups can better prepare themselves um, to insulate themselves from a, you know, a future instance where we might have a, you know, inflation might jack up again? Well, I think there's, um, and, and these may be positive things, several things that we can learn from this. Anytime you go through something, you know, there's potential for learning. Um, some of it was forced on us, so we need to do it even more. But things like better use of technology, a lot of industries have figured this out now that happened with COVID and then the labor shortages thereafter. You know, automated check-in and the and the air counter, you know, mm-hmm. airline travel has helped with that kind of stuff. You know, some businesses have, have really pivoted and looked at what they can do and remain in business. My, my favorite local um, Chinese restaurant um, now is takeout only. You know, even though they've got space right. and even though they could return to having, they realize that, you know, they can have a nice business with takeout only. We've developed mm-hmm. a lot of other processes. So healthcare needs to look at technology, look at different ways of doing things and say, are there other better ways that we can do it specifically around more efficient and lower cost that will produce, you know, help in, in you know, insulating you from further inflationary things. You know, I think a lot of them have to take a look at what we learned from COVID and have 
contingency plans in place, you know, that we didn't have for COVID, whether it's what happens if we can't see patients, you know, physically down to what happens if we run into a labor shortage or supply cost, what are our contingency plans? Um, it's similar to, you know, the way the military approaches things, you know, back in the Cold War, you know, NATO had a myriad of plans of what to do if the Russians started rolling across the fold of gap, what mm -hmm. happens if it's in the winter, and one division, what if it's in the summer in here, what, it, and the reason is when it happens, you don't have time to develop it, you reach in the drawer and say, this is my contingency plan that you put in a place. So I think healthcare can do some of that. Um, but truly starting to sort of break the old mold and say, how do we do things better, cheaper, faster and evolve? Um, will help um, both in what they're currently dealing with and then the next time some problem comes up. Well, with, without going into, you know, extraneous detail, what, what are some ways that, that hospitals and physician groups can do that? Um, I, you know, I think like a lot of businesses, you know, don't just automatically assume that the way you did things yesterday is the way it has to be done. You should question all of that. I know a lot of, in the, in the nursing shortage right now, um, a lot of the groups that I work with are questioning, well, do I have to have this many nurses? Is there a way to um, provide just as good a care with either a different level of staff or less staff? Um, I, you know, I've got one group, for example, that um, uh, you know, part of what the nurse was doing for these doctors was chart noting into the EMR, you know, typing in things mm -hmm. like that, et cetera. And so they are working with a company that does remote scribing. Um, and a scribe is just somebody that documents what the doctor is saying and doing into the chart, which saves the doctor time and eliminates you know, that staff cost. And they're doing it, remote scribing, through those Google Glasses things, mm -hmm. where the doctor puts on the little glass, they're not, you know, they don't have any prescription to it, puts on the glasses, it's got a camera and a recording in it. So when they walk in the room, the scribe who's sitting somewhere completely remotely is hearing and seeing everything the doctor's doing. And it has one of those little screens where the doctor can swipe the side of the glasses and the lab test will come up in like a heads up display. Mm -hmm. um, and so while they're talking to the patient and doing everything, they're saying, uh, please make a note to order, you know, these lab tests. And the scribe is writing it in. And the scribe's listening to what they're saying and they're documenting the chart note. Now the doctor still has to sign off on it. But the other thing is, in addition to lowering cost and making it more efficient, they can see more patients, the patients actually like it because instead of the doctor staring at a laptop, an EMR screen, and asking questions while they're typing, staring at a screen, the doctor's looking at the patient and making eye contact. And so the patients feel like they'll, they'll even say, they spent more time with me, which they didn't, because they were just more engaged. So it's things like that, but that's really starting to question do I really need a nurse to do that? Or is there another way to get all of that stuff done, mm -hmm. which is just as good and cheaper? There is. And the side benefit is, and the patient likes it better. So you know, that's just one example, but everything they do should be sort of questioned like that. I'm sure another example too would be having, you know, for applicable types of appointments with, with your physician is having it through telehealth as opposed mm -hmm. to needing to come into the office and check in and see someone exactly. and that sort of thing. I'm sure yeah. online billing has also changed that in ways that it wasn't there before. Well, and, and like uh, online check-in and, and appointment scheduling, mm -hmm. there are really very few practices where you can actually go into their online system and schedule an appointment and then do almost all the check-in before you get there. Now the, that technology is getting there, but Mm -hmm. Why not? 
Right. I mean, first of all, it's better for me. I can rather than tying up somebody on the phone and doing it there, and I can walk right in and not. You don't have to have you know eighteen check-in people and me sitting in a waiting room which full of COVID germs. So yeah, st all that use of technology we need to really ramp up in healthcare. Really quickly, as we take a look at uh, our healthcare, you know, equation that we've been putting everything in, you know, the cost, you know, aff affordability, uh, access, and uh, quality. Where do you see the country right now in the American healthcare system in that equation? Uh, a current state of the system, or um, where it's headed, it, or both? We'll do both. Sure. Yeah. So current state of the system, and I will argue this with anybody who wants to argue with it. We have the highest level of quality of healthcare in the world, which is different than saying we as Americans have the highest health status. Okay, and we've talked about this before. We do some pretty bad stuff to ourselves, and you know that's why we're rampant with cardiac disease and diabetes and smoking mm -hmm. and all this stuff. But healthcare delivery—if I had something seriously wrong with me, I don't want to be anywhere else in the world. Um, so I'd say quality—we're number one. Cost—we are also number one. You know, that quality doesn't come without a price, but a big part of that price is just how sick we try to make ourselves with our with our lifestyle. So I'd say quality, we're high, cost, we're high. Access, it depends on sort of who you are. So we've got very good access to emergency care. Everybody gets it. Um, but yeah, if you are um, in the lower socioeconomic strata of the country and have either poor health insurance or Medicaid or whatever, you don't have nearly the access of people who are um, higher income and, and better health care. So access, we've got a lot to be desired. Um, now, for those folks that do have access, you know, find me someplace else in the world where, you know, if my doctor saw something concerning today, I could be on an MRI machine tomorrow morning and having the read tomorrow afternoon and, and a diagnosis by the end of the day. Mm -hmm. It doesn't exist. We have it. Um, and that's part of what drives our cost up. So that's where we are today. Now, where we're going, um, boy, that's, that's anybody's guess because a lot of things that are right now putting stressors on the system, like the cost issues that we've, we've talked about, definitely could bump up our cost even more and we can't afford that, but also have the real um, possibility of starting to reduce quality and access. Because as hospitals or doctor's office have to reduce staffing, et cetera, that can really impact quality of care, you know, and access. Um, you know, there's, there's no law that requires that a hospital have, you know, a cardiac surgery team that can do surgeries on the weekends. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, what happens if you roll in with that, with that MI on Friday afternoon and they go, well, we hope you live through the weekend. And if, if you're still here on Monday, we'll, we'll crack that chest open and see what we can do about that. You know, that's, you know, that's not illegal. And a lot of hospitals don't have that. Well, even more, we'll start to, right. you know, head down that road if we can't get control on some of these labor costs. Before we go, I'll, I'll ask you one more question then. Sure. And, and this, how, how do we, how do we as, you know, either consumers or how do we as the, you know, U.S. government, how do we turn this around from, from where we are now? Well, and this may be a, maybe a horribly pessimistic view of the U.S. government, and, and I'll apologize for that up front, and I'll defend it by saying that, you know, the difference between a pessimist and an optimist is experience. Um, I, I don't think the government is by itself the solution. 
Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think they're going to come up with the solution on their own because I think they're largely driven by self-motivation on how to stay in whatever elected position they're in. Now, that being said, I think we as the public can force the government to do it because once you understand that the primary motivation of the majority of people, I'll say, in, in an elected position is to remain in that elected position, mm -hmm. then it's easy to make them do what you want to do, make that a, a condition upon their continued you know, position. So, you know, if, if all 100 senators suddenly realize that the only way they're going to get reelected is to fix health care, you'll be amazed at how much activity there'll be about fixing health care. Um, so I think we as the public are, it's contingent upon us to make sure that we vote with what we think is intelligent for what needs to happen for the country. And then we make it clear to those we're voting for what we expect. And then if they fail to give it to us, that there will be somebody else we can vote for. Um, you know, I, I forget what it was. I heard somebody said, you know, you know, the nice thing about position or by politicians is hit them with votes and their hearts and minds will soon follow. Well, that's that's very true. And uh, if any of that happens coming up after the, the 2022 election or as we go into 2024, I'll be sure to ask you about it. Ron, thanks Absolutely. for joining us this week. Very welcome. For our final thought today, a hospital in Michigan has figured out a way to improve efficiency and combat labor costs, as well as update their technology. Trinity Health's St. Joseph Mercy Oakland has been testing out two new robots named Moxie. With just a few taps on a tablet, Moxie can deliver meals, medication, and supplies for patients across all floors of the hospital. The robot, designed by Diligent Robotics, is one of many ways delivery systems across the country are working to improve cost and efficiency. The Livonia-based hospital system says that if Moxie works out well at their location in Pontiac, they'll roll her out to the other Trinity Health locations. In six weeks, Moxie had made more than 1,200 deliveries, which the hospital says saved nurses 340 hours of work. Moxie is mostly used during the night shift. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2022, all rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, Audible, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Ron Howard and I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week. <laughs>